right. Well, at long last, here we are. Um, after announcing it many, many months ago, uh, we are finally ready to embark on our Sunday evening study of the book of Jonah. I'm really looking forward to our time together in this book. And one of the reasons I'm looking forward to our time in this study in Jonah is, Andrew even alluded to it earlier, that Jonah, like many of the Old Testament books, and especially the prophets, is often an overlooked book, uh, often a very underdeveloped book, especially in the modern evangelical pulpit. Uh, Pastors elect not to preach it, and I think one of the reasons they may do so is some sort of fear of there only being a surface-level familiarity out there with books like Jonah, driven by things like the old flannel graph stories or these days veggie tales. I think pastors might be doubtful even of the relevance of a book like Jonah to modern-day Christian audiences, but I just have to say I can't think of a book with more pertinence to us today than a book like this one. Not only, of course, is it inspired and breathed out by God and therefore profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and righteousness, just like any of the other 65 books of the Bible, but practically speaking, we see so much in the book of Jonah specifically that has so much to do with lives today for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see so much in this book about God and his character, as we're going to see in our study of this book. We see so much in this book about this servant of Yahweh, Jonah, who, as we're going to see as we go through the study, had a, a difficult time getting his act together. A man who wasn't always obedient. A man who, at times, had difficulty remembering who it was he was serving. This is the profile of a man who I suspect many of us at different times in our Christian walk can relate to. Not because we necessarily want to relate to Jonah, but as we strive to do better and better for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit. But it's still a profile, a man that we can relate to in our fallen humanity, in our fallen flesh. Now tonight's message is going to be very much, as you can imagine, introductory in nature. We'll do a survey, a very high-level survey to sort of start off the message. We'll do this overview of some of the major elements and the features of the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah as a whole, and that will be sort of our way to ramp up to where we'll be going in the next several Sunday evenings. And then what we'll do in the second half of the message tonight is we'll actually start working through some of the text, and specifically the first 2.5 verses of Jonah chapter 1. So uh, with that, let's get right into considering some of the background features, the the backstory to what's happening in the book of Jonah. We'll start with things like authorship and dating. We'll start with the authorship and the dating of this book. In doing so, we're asking the question, who wrote Jonah, humanly speaking? We know the Holy Spirit breathed out the book of Jonah, but who in human terms was the, the author? Who did the Holy Spirit move to write this book? And then when was it written? Well, as you can see from the opening lines, I'll have you go ahead and turn to Jonah now. If you're not there already, it might take you a bit. So Hosea, Jonah, Amos, and then work your way through a few more of the minor prophets, and you'll find eventually the book of Jonah, just four chapters. So this account, as you can see in Jonah 1.1, it actually doesn't tell us. And if we were to survey the entire book tonight, we would see that the, the book actually doesn't tell us who wrote the book. Now, the book clearly is about a man named Jonah. It has the title, and he's mentioned throughout the book, but the book doesn't tell us precisely who wrote the book. And some have argued that that means that the author of Jonah was not Jonah, 
because he's referred to in the third person in this book. And it'd be kind of odd to refer to yourself in the third person all the time. Like if I was just to have conversation with you in the South lobby and say things like, hey, Jesse thinks your shirt is really nice today. Or Jesse thinks the weather is nice today. You'd be like, who's this Jesse you're talking about? And I'd be like, well, it's me. And then we would have other issues. But some have argued that it wasn't Jonah who wrote the book, but instead somebody else who is referring to Jonah. That is not actually a very strong argument, though, because we know from other Old Testament books that biblical authors refer to themselves in the third person. We know, for instance, that Moses very often in the Old Testament Pentateuch referred to himself as Moses in the third person, often calling himself by his proper name, even going so far as he infamously did to declare himself the most humble man who ever lived. Isaiah did the same thing. Daniel did the same thing, referring to themselves in the third person. So the point is, there are other prophets who refer to themselves in the third person. And that means that fact alone doesn't disqualify Jonah as being the the human author here. And really, as you look through the book, and as you look through other features, like we're going to get to in 2 Kings, where we see another reference to Jonah, there really is no reason to discount the traditional position, which is that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Jonah was the guy with the front row seat to all that happened. Jonah is indeed a prophet, as we're going to see in 2 Kings in just a second. And there's no reason to discount that he was the one who wrote this book. Now, who was Jonah? Well, looking here again at Jonah 1.1, we see he was the son of Amittai. And we know nothing about Amittai, Jonah's father, except that that word or that name, Amittai, means my true one. We know that Jonah was a Hebrew. We look down at Jonah 1.9. We're going to get to this episode likely next week where it says he said to them, to the sailors on this ship, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, we also know that Jonah was a Hebrew prophet. So he was no ordinary Hebrew. He was an appointed Hebrew prophet. And one of the reasons we know that is from the only other place we see Jonah's name mentioned in the Old Testament which is in 2 Kings 14. In fact, let's turn there back to 2 Kings 14. And as you're finding your way there to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, I'm going to go ahead and lay out some of the history of the entirety of Old Testament Israel as we sort of catch up and ramp up to where Jonah fits in this story. Now, we have to remember that the book of Jonah was, like each of the other books of the Old Testament, and like each of the books of the New Testament, written to a specific group of people in a specific time in history in a very specific context. And so to set the stage for where we're going to look here in, in 2 Kings 14 eventually, we need to go way back in time, like, like way, way back in time to the very beginning. As we remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what that tells us is that several thousand, not millions, not billions of years ago, God made the world and everything in it. And we know that God created the world perfectly and that he did so in six literal 24-hour periods. God created the sun and he created the moon and the stars. He created the earth and the seas. He created plants and vegetation. He created animals on land and animals on sky and animals in the, in the sea. And then as the crown of his creation, we know from Genesis 1.26, he created man in his own image. And in doing so, he created them, Genesis 1.27, Male and female. That's an eternal standard. It doesn't matter how many votes or politicians try to change that. He created them male and female. Then we see in Genesis 131 that that God saw all that he had made 
and behold, it was very good. So God did his part. He created all things. He created the the flora and the fauna. He created people, male and female. He did his part. Man did not. A man disobeyed. Man did the one thing that he was commanded not to do. Man sinned. And as a result, sin entered the world. Romans 5.12, through one man, sin, sin entered into the world, which brought about the curse on the world with humanity coming under God's judgment. That sin culminated in, in, in the flood during Noah's day. But once the, the waters from the flood started to recede, the world began to repopulate. And then we know after the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11, in which the people all gathered in one place to try to make a name for themselves, God scattered them. And then in Genesis 12, he called Abram, a later Abraham, to be the father of many nations. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob, later called Israel, had 12 sons who would later be known as or called the 12 sons of Israel. And then following the lead of Joseph, Israel ended up in Egypt for 400 years, where they went from being favored to ultimately being oppressed. After Pharaoh turned on them and enslaved them, Moses eventually led them out of Egyptian captivity. And then under, under Moses' successor, Joshua, the people we know eventually entered the promised land of Canaan, where they were first ruled by judges and later by kings, the greatest of whom was, of course, David, who, despite his obvious flaws, was still described as a man after God's own heart. David's son Solomon succeeded him, and though Solomon was, outside of Christ, the, the wisest man who ever lived, he was still deeply human and deeply flawed, and he was eventually overridden by his love for women and wealth and the world's philosophy. Solomon started off strong, we know, in the earliest part of First Kings, but eventually those cracks in his character, the compromise started to show, which we see him later lamenting now as an old man in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was eventually succeeded by his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam, though, was opposed by Jeroboam, and that's when the 12 tribes of Israel split. That was sometime in 931 BC. The unified kingdom up to that point was now a divided kingdom, with there being now 10 tribes in the north, called Israel or Ephraim, led by Jeroboam, and now two tribes in the south, called Judah. And we know that much of the history from that point forward of the northern kingdom was marked by bloodshed with one king murdering the next king to take the throne, to succeed to the throne, all while the people were engrossed with the worship of false idols. And then by the time we get to Jonah's day, somewhere in the middle of the 8th century BC, the kingdom was still divided. But life, at least in some areas, had improved because the northern kingdom was now this place of of relative political peace and economic prosperity. However, it was still very much a place marked by spiritual idolatry. In fact, we saw that, that very thing in our study of Hosea last year, which we took uh, through much of, much of Sunday nights uh, last year. And that's an interesting and important because Hosea and Jonah were actually contemporaries. They were battling and going after the same false worship that was dotting the land at the time. So the point, though, is that at this time in history, there was sort of this schizophrenic personality to Israel. They were, they were very economically wealthy and prosperous and doing well, but at the same time, they were spiritually devoid and lacking and drifting. And that's the context for where we're going to be tonight as we look to Jonah. And that was just to give you guys enough time to get to 2 Kings 14. Are you there yet? Just making sure. 2 Kings 14, where we're going to see a few more details here 
about Jonah, now that we're all caught up. Look at 2 Kings 14, and we'll start in verse 23. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, we're now in the divided kingdom, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. That Jeroboam, by the way, is Jeroboam II. That's who our focus is tonight. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That would be Jeroboam I, which he made Israel's sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hafer. So a few additional details about Jonah. Again, this is all by way of background for our study of Jonah that we can pull from this account here in 2 Kings 14. First, we know that Jonah served during the reign of Jeroboam II. That, that's who's referred to here in, our, in, in 2 Kings 14. And we know that Jeroboam II was a wicked king. Look at verse uh, 23 again there. I'm sorry, verse 24. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. We know that Jeroboam II was a, a powerful and long reigning king. In fact, he reigned, it says, 41 years. And we know from, from piecing the, the chronology together that he reigned from 793 B.C. until 753 B.C. So Jonah was, was serving this wicked king for many of those years, and he did so in these years between 793 and 753 B.C., some segment of those 41 years. Most in our camp, meaning conservative inerrantists, would say that Jonah's ministry during that period of 793 to 753, and when Jonah most likely wrote this book, the book we're studying, Jonah, was around 760 BC, somewhere toward the tail end of Jeroboam II's reign. So that's a bit about Jonah from 2 Kings. We also know that, that Jonah from this passage was a prophet of God. We know that this was a time of crisis in Israel. And though the reigning king, Jeroboam II, as it says, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and, and that there were some real consequences to the evil that he was doing in the sight of the Lord, even then we know that because of God's love for the people of Israel, the people he had originally set his love upon, he continued, because of that love, to send prophets to his people to get them to turn around. And he did so during these reigns of these wicked kings. And what these prophets did is they served as these pockets of light and truth in the midst of the darkness. As they were continually calling on these kings and these rulers and the people to repent of their wickedness and to turn back to God. Jonah was one of those prophets. And if we were to lay his ministry on sort of like an Old Testament timeline, what we would see is that Jonah's immediate predecessors to being a prophet in the prophetic office would have been Elijah and Elisha. And then his contemporaries, as I just mentioned, one of them was Hosea and another would have been Amos. Now, in the case of Jonah, he was God's appointed mouthpiece to the Israelite people of his day, meaning though he served under a wicked king, he was still required as a prophet to speak on behalf of God, both to the king and the people of Israel. He was there to be a voice of truth in the middle of all the wickedness and the apostasy. Third thing we know from this passage here in Second uh, Kings 14 about Jonah is that Jonah did, in fact, speak the word of God in Israel. We're told there in the, verse 25, 
that when Jeroboam II restored this border, the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, he did so according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So what that means is that as God's mouthpiece, Jonah was accustomed to receiving the word of the Lord and then communicating the word of the Lord to those who were under his care or within earshot. And that is going to play a part later when we get into the word of the Lord back in the book of Jonah. Fourth thing that we get from this text, 2 Kings 14, is where Jonah was from. We see that he was the son of Amittai, verse 25 here, the prophet who was of Gath Hafer. All we know about that place is from Joshua 19, verse 13, which is where this city is described as a, a village that was in the territory of Zebulun, one of the 10 northern tribes, which was somewhat close to Nazareth. And then to add to the potpourri of other facts that we know about Jonah, as we do all this background on the front end tonight, we can add a few more. One is that Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove, which doesn't appear to have any real special exegetical significance for what's happening in the book, but I reserve my right to change my mind as we work through the book and, and go through the study. We also know that Jonah is, is identified in Jonah chapter 1 as a worshiper of Yahweh. Again, Jonah 1.9, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, we know, as we're going to get into the text even tonight, that Jonah was an ardent nationalist. Uh, he was very much pro-Israel. And as we're going to see, he was very much anti-Assyrian. And then one final observation, just in terms of his person, is that Jonah, and I'm sure as you've done any study in this book, you know this, he was incredibly strong-willed and incredibly stubborn. And we're going to see that in various places in the study. So that's a little bit about the authorship, the dating, the background of the book of Jonah. What about themes? What are some of the major themes of the book of Jonah? Uh, what are some of the major points of, of emphasis or, or stress in, in the book? Of course, when, when most people, the, the common man on the street, you could go to the Haymarket and ask somebody, what's the book of Jonah about? And you might get an answer that would have something to do with a fish, right? Or a whale, or the perennial debate, was it a fish or a whale? And did it really happen? Those are the questions that people think are the main issues going on in the book of Jonah. Those are the things that people assume are the central facts of Jonah. Was he swallowed by a fish? Was he swallowed by a whale? Did he actually survive or did he die? Did he come back to life? Was this some kind of resurrection pre-Christ, you know, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in Jonah in the belly of the whale or the fish? Those are the kind of questions people wrestle with as though those are the main points or the main ideas of Jonah. But those aren't the main points of Jonah. Those aren't actually the big issues of the book. Those aren't the major themes of the book. Those aren't the essential points of the book. At the heart of this book, rather, are themes like the sovereignty of God in accomplishing all that he decrees, in accomplishing all that he purposes. Uh, another theme is the glory of God. The glory of God demonstrated in this context through Israel to the nations. And that's consistent with what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 49.3. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory, says Yahweh. Or Psalm 67.1 and 2. 
It says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. So the glory of God displayed to the nations is a theme in Jonah. We also know that a major theme in Jonah is, is the mercy and the grace that God displays to unrepentant sinners by not smiting them, by not bringing on them right away the divine hammer of justice that their sin deserves. As one commentator notes, the book of Jonah is not so much about this great fish that appears in the middle of the book, but in order to teach Jonah that he has a gracious God. And here's another one, another theme, obedience to God. The obedience to God that he requires of all of his subjects at all times, in all eras, in all places. So those are some of the themes. The sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the mercy and grace of God, and and obedience to God. Uh, Here's another background detail that I can't not discuss tonight. We'll get into it later when we get into Jonah chapter 2. But we have to at least note the fact that Jesus accepted Jonah as being true. The account of Jonah as being historical fact. Now, the fact that Jonah is in the Bible is, should be enough for us, right? We studied inerrancy and, and canonicity all summer long and Sunday evenings. We looked at that process of how the scriptures were recognized to be what they already are. So we know that the fact that Jonah is here means that it is from God, that it is profitable, that it does belong in the canon, that it is canonical. But on top of that, Jesus, in multiple places in the Gospels, three times to be exact, affirms the historicity of Jonah. Three different places. I'll, I'll read to you one of those. In fact, why don't we turn there just so we can see it with our own eyes. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is one of the, the more key references where Jesus makes very clear that he wasn't doing textual criticism as he encountered the book of Jonah. He accepted it for what it, what it is, God's very word. Now look at Matthew twelve thirty eight. Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, meaning Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they have repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The other cross references you can jot down would be Matthew 16, 4 and Luke eleven twenty nine through 32. But again, it's obvious from those passages that Jesus himself accepted the record that the historicity of the book of Jonah, including that record of him being in the belly of the fish. Now, what about form and style in the book of Jonah? Uh, one more bit of background information to give you is that Jonah is, what is, is one of what is known as the minor prophets, um, or historically what was known as the Twelve. And of course, the minor prophets aren't minor because of the significance or the insignificance of their content. They're minor because of the brevity of their content. It just means that Jonah is a short book. It's four chapters. It's a a total of 48 verses, meaning we'll be able to to move through it completely, relatively quickly. And I use that word relatively intentionally there. I can't tell you exactly how long it'll take, but we'll move through it relatively quickly. And it's prophetic narrative is the genre here. This book 
parallels in, in many ways the writings of other major and minor prophets. It has prophetic aspects to it, but it's also recounting historical events as they actually occurred. But there is one major difference between what Jonah reports, the book of Jonah reports, and what those other prophetic works report. And we'll get into this many times through this series, which is that in those other prophetic accounts, considerable emphasis is given by the author on the prophet's faithfulness to God's call. Think of Isaiah chapter 6 in the heavenly throne room scene. And he says what? Here I am, send me. Or, Or last year we studied Hosea. And one of the most moving, I think, riveting portions of all of Hosea is actually, I think it's in Hosea 1, 2 or 1, 3, where after God tells Hosea, the prophet, to go marry a prostitute, Gomer, right away, the next few words are, so he went. Immediate obedience, first time obedience, immediate action to do something that none of us would want to do, but because it came from the command of God, he did it. So we have those examples, Isaiah and Hosea, But Jonah's a lot different. Jonah gets a command, and the example he gives us is what we're not to do, uh, how we're not to respond when there's a command from God. So that's all background. Much more certainly could be said, but I'm eager to get into our text itself. So I'm going to cut off the preliminaries at this point, and let's go ahead and dig a bit more deeply into the book of Jonah. And again, tonight we're going to work through the first two and a half of the 48 verses of this book. We'll start in verse 1, Jonah 1 1. God's word reads The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So in these nearly three verses, uh, we're going to see three central points are being made. We're seeing who Jonah was, what Yahweh, God, wanted him to do, and then what Jonah's response was. Uh, The way I've framed it up from the standpoint of giving you a three-point alliterated outline is we're going to see the description, that'd be in verse 1. We're going to see the decree in verse 2, and then we'll see the departure in verse 3. Let's start with the description The description in verse 1, as in what this first line of prophetic narrative describes about this initial touch point between Yahweh and Jonah. The text tells us, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The book of Jonah, in other words, like many other books of the Bible, begins by affirming God's word. By affirming its central message as being God's word. The word of the Lord, it says, came to Jonah. So as the Bible records it, God's sovereign call to Jonah came without any warning or explanation. We're not giving it any run-up to what happens here. It was sudden, but its source was without question. This was the word of the Lord. Now that introductory phrase there is going to be something that you'll encounter as you go through each of the different minor prophets. You'll see something very similar as you open any one of the, the books of the Twelve. Uh, Like Hosea 1.1, I'm going to rattle off a few of these here. The word of the Lord, Hosea 1.1, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Or Joel 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Or Micah 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth 
In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Or Zephaniah 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah of Ammon, king of Judah. Or Haggai 1.1, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Zechariah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Or Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So in those books that I've just rattled off there, the word of the Lord refers to the message that the prophet was presenting to his audience in the name of the Lord. In Jonah 1.1, though, by contrast, what we see are the instructions that were given directly by the Lord to his prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And in what way, might we ask, did these instructions come to Jonah? How did he receive the word of the Lord? Was it in an audible voice or did an angel of the Lord deliver this message to him? Did God speak to Jonah through a dream or an appearance of some sort? Was there a a still small voice involved? The text doesn't tell us. The exact manner in which the word of the Lord was relayed to Jonah here is not given. The specific means of divine human communication is not specified. The personal circumstances and the psychological state of Jonah at the time God spoke to him aren't disclosed. Attention to any of those details is not revealed at all. Rather, what's being emphasized and what's in focus here is this single and supreme fact that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And a point to stress here is that in this time, the very time that Jonah lived and ministered, we do know that there was what's called a famine in the land. Not a famine in terms of of hunger for food. We know this was a time of prosperity, economically speaking, in Israel. But there was a famine for God's word. The prophet Amos, in in Amos 8.11, would say that very thing. And Amos, again, is this contemporary of Jonah. In Amos 8.11, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Meaning, Jonah was privileged. He's living in this time where this famine is imminent, if it's not already there, this famine for the word of the Lord, and now he has the word of the Lord coming to him, mid-famine. And that's a privilege we can relate to, can we not? I mean, what are we holding in our hands? What is sitting in your lap? What is sitting on this pulpit, but the very word of the Lord? What am I preaching from this evening, but the very word of the Lord? We have 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, not the mere word of men in our hands. We have the word of God, which is doing its work in you who believe. We have Hebrews 4, 12, the word of the Lord, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces between the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have what 2 Peter 1, 19 calls the prophetic word made more sure to which you would be well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. So we understand what a privilege we have to hold the written word of the Lord, what Jonah had was some version of the word of the Lord that came to him there in his home base in Israel. 
So that's a bit about the description. That's just all background, all context, not only to the the book of Jonah as a whole, but even to this first verse here as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And now we're going to look at verse 2. We're going to see this decree or command or instruction. That's our our second heading tonight, the decree. I'll I'll read verse 1 again to give us sort of the lead in to verse 2. But we're going to focus in now on verse 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now look at those words of command there. Arise, go, cry against. And then it's all followed by that simple explanation there, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now that first command there, arise, it actually modifies the next word, which is go. So it's arise and go. There's a sense of immediacy here. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and then there's this sense of now he had to go at once. In other words, this was a definite and firm call for the Lord, from the Lord. There was no time to doubt what was being said. There was no time to question what was being said. There was no time to to exegete or or study this command, this word from the Lord. No, the Lord had given Jonah his traveling orders. He had given Jonah his coordinates. And the destination was set to go, it says, to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, we know, was a, a great distance away from where Jonah's home base would have been there in Israel. We know that Nineveh was in the heart of a violent empire, the the Assyrian Empire. It was about 600 miles northeast of where Jonah would have been. It's near modern-day Mosul in Iraq. This would have been one of the largest cities in the ancient world, which is why it's called Nineveh, the great city. In fact, if you drop down to Jonah 3.3, we're going to see how how large Nineveh was. Look at Jonah 3.3. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. We'll get more into what that means and that entails as we come upon that text. Or down in Jonah 4.11, at the very last verse of the book, God here says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Now, these are just some basic biblical details here about how large Nineveh was, how significant a city Nineveh was. And we also know from other extra-biblical resources that this was indeed a a great city. It was was a fortress city. It had walls, according to some records, that were at least 100 feet high. And the walls were so thick that you could ride, it was said, three chariots side-by-side on top of the walls and fit them all in there. And then even in between the walls, there were gardens and entire fields for cattle and and grazing. In other words, this was a large, strong, well-fortified city. But it wasn't just large and strong and well-fortified. We know this was a very wicked city. Now, though the nature of the wickedness and and the trouble that was in this city is not given in great detail here in, in the book of Jonah... It's not really elaborated upon in the book of Jonah. The reader of Jonah and this prophecy as they received it here in verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2, where it says, for their wickedness has come up before me. In Jonah's time, they would have understand what that meant because Nineveh's reputation preceded it as being, in fact, an exceedingly wicked city. This, in fact, is, is well described and, and more thoroughly described 
in the book of Nahum. So why don't you turn with me to the book of Nahum? Let's see who can get to the book of Nahum the fastest. Two books to the right, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And look at Nahum 3. And this just gives you a picture of God's perspective on the wickedness of this particular city, Nineveh. Nahum is a prophecy that ties directly into the future destruction of this city, Nineveh. Look at Nahum 3. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, and this is the Lord addressing Nineveh here, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? God clearly did not have a warm, fuzzy perspective on Nineveh. This was a wicked, wicked city. A large city, a pagan city, and a wicked city. And now God here in Jonah is sending this prophet to that city, and he's sending him there alone. And note, verse 2, Jonah was not only to go to Nineveh, the great city, he was, it says, to cry against it. Meaning when he got to Nineveh, he was to proclaim a message of doom on this wicked city. He was to call on this wicked city to repent of their wicked ways. This was not a task for the faint hearted. I mean, imagine being Jonah and receiving this type of calling. This is not exactly like going down to the courthouse or to Holmes Lake. This would have been an incredibly daunting task. But we know. Do we not that this is exactly the way that God has worked throughout history? Often giving his people, his his chosen spokespersons, the most difficult of missions, right? He called Abraham to to leave his father's land and, and to journey to a distant land. He called Moses to stand before Pharaoh and cry out in Exodus chapter five, let my people go. He directed Isaiah sometimes a a forgotten scene in Isaiah 20, to walk naked and barefoot for three years as he preached judgment against Egypt and Cush. He directed a teenage girl named Mary to carry the Messiah of Israel in her virgin womb, threatening her reputation and her betrothal. He's called countless missionaries throughout church history to take the gospel to far off lands with no promise that the the message of the cross will ever be embraced and no promise that their lives will ever be spared. I think often of this missionary, you've heard of him, him, I'm sure, named Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma many, many years ago now. And there's this infamous letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to the future, his future father-in-law as he sought his daughter's hand in marriage. The man that he was writing this letter to was named Mr. Hasseltine. And he sought again to marry his daughter before he took off to Burma. Basically, he was looking to marry his daughter 
and then take off to Burma, perhaps never to be back in the States again. And I just want to read this letter to you because it highlights the call, the ask that God often makes of his people. This is Judson to Mr. Hasseltine. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? We don't write letters like we used to. But how profound. Judson got it. He got the cost of true service of the living God. And the point I'm trying to make here, tying it back to Jonah, is that God sometimes gives his people very difficult commands and and does so for his own sovereign purposes and to achieve his own sovereign ends. Bringing it back to Jonah, that's what we see here in verse 2. Jonah was to arise and, and go to Nineveh. And not because that was the plan that maybe made the most sense in Jonah's mind, but because that is what God had decreed and ordained. This is what had come to Jonah through the word of the Lord. And note that Jonah wasn't going to Nineveh for relaxation or a little R&R. No, he was called to Nineveh again to go and cry out against it. He was going as a herald, as a messenger, as a preacher. And he was going there with a message And that message is given in the last part of verse 2. For their wickedness has come up before me, says God. These were words of denunciation from God against this city, from the God who rules all things, from the God who is the judge of all the earth. And now taking just a step back for a minute and putting ourselves in Jonah's shoes for a bit, going back to verse 1, as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, I imagine there might have at least been initially some sense of excitement on Jonah's part when he started to receive whatever this word of the Lord was going to be. Remember, he had handled the word of the Lord before. We saw that back in 2 Kings 14. He knew what his commission was as a prophet, which was to receive the word of the Lord and then to declare the word of the Lord to other people. So you can almost picture the anticipation Jonah might have had here as some new word was coming to him from Yahweh to announce And of course, Jonah's assumption likely was, as it was for any of the prophets of Israel, that this word of the Lord he was about to receive had to do with Israel, the very nation to whom he'd been called. And what he was going to have to do now is call Israel to repent of their idolatrous practices and and turn back to God. But the word of the Lord had nothing to do with Israel. Rather, it had to do with Assyria, Israel's enemy. Jonah here is told to pack his bags and to head to one of the great cities of Assyria, Nineveh. So not only was God's command to Jonah sovereign, and not only was it sudden, it was difficult to hear. It was difficult to receive. It was difficult to process. He was to go and, and go immediately. Arise, go. 
And he was to go to this faraway land and and this foreign land, and he was to cry out against it. Now, just so we know that this is not a, a total aberration here, this was not the only time or the exclusive time where a prophet of Israel was called to go minister in some way to non-Israelites. Jonah's predecessors, Elijah and Elisha, did that very thing. We know that Elisha was called to go to Zarephath in Phoenician territory and give food to a widow and her family and restored her son's life. That was a non-Israelite. That happened in 1 Kings 17. We know that Elisha healed the leper, Naaman. In 2 Kings 5. And that leper was not an Israelite leper. He was from Aram or or Syria. So again, it's not like it was above the pay grade of a a Hebrew prophet to do things for people that were outside of Israel. But Jonah here wasn't asked to give food to widows or to heal lepers. He was being asked to go to this great city and cry out against it and call it out for its sin. And again, it wasn't just any city he was being called to. It was a a city whose wicked ways and whose evil name and its evil nature was on full display. Their their wickedness has come up before me. The wickedness of Nineveh had had come to the Lord's attention. That's not implying that the Lord, the all-wise, all-knowing, all-sovereign Lord, was somehow unaware before of this, this people's depravity. But rather what that's indicating is that the situation had degenerated. It had gotten so bad that the Lord's patience and mercy toward Nineveh and toward Assyria were now being overshadowed by the demands for his own justice. And he was going to send Jonah to take care of it. Well, Jonah didn't agree. Jonah disapproved. Though God clearly had a plan which involved going to this wicked city to give them an opportunity to repent, Jonah apparently wasn't on board. Uh, Though this command came from on high, from Almighty God, through his very word, Jonah wasn't going to follow. So we've seen the description. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. We've seen the decree, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Now we're going to look at the departure. Look at verse 3. Again, just the first part there. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I've already sort of alluded to this, but in just about every other instance in Scripture where a prophet is given a command to act in a manner like this, when they're commanded to proclaim something on God's behalf or to decree something on God's behalf, when the sovereign God called on them to do so, they answered. When Yahweh instructed, they obeyed. Not so Jonah. Yahweh commanded Jonah to go east to Nineveh. And as we're going to see, Jonah in reply went west to Tarshish. And it all starts with that that adversative conjunction at the beginning of verse 3 where it says, but. But Jonah. That's indicating a sharp contrast. And it's actually giving real strong emphasis to the sad report that's about to follow. Yahweh had commissioned Jonah to to herald his word of judgment upon Nineveh, that that great Assyrian city, that wicked Assyrian city. But Jonah, fully conscious of what he was doing and deliberately, defiantly obeyed, disobeyed God. His bad attitude, his actions were extreme as he willfully and intentionally chose to participate in the, the exceedingly serious sin of rebellion, rebelling against God here. And note what Jonah did instead. It says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. 
That was not, by the way, Tarsus of Cilicia, where Paul the Apostle was from. Rather, Tarshish was a commercial outpost on the coast of ancient Spain, far west, beyond Gibraltar, far distant from the land of Israel. In other words, Jonah was apparently determined to go as far as he possibly could from, the, from where he'd been told to go. So anyway, the boldness of Jonah's opposition to Yahweh is on total display here. He's called to go east, he goes west. He's charged to go to Assyria, the center of the, the known world among the pagan peoples, but instead he goes to this remote trading post on the Spanish coast. God seeks to have Jonah be this constructive participant in his divine purposes and bringing about repentance there in Nineveh. But Jonah instead seeks to completely remove himself from God's plans and God's purposes. But why? Why would Jonah go to that length? Why did Jonah flee? Why did he depart? Well, a variety of reasons have been offered and theories have been offered over the years. Some have suggested that Jonah was simply overcome and overwhelmed and stressed out by the thoughts of the difficulties of this mission that God had set him on. In other words, for Jonah, this was just an intimidating task to go far away to this far city, this great city, this wicked city, to to arrive there all alone, ready to preach this message of of judgment and repentance upon the Ninevites. And the thought of of thinking, what what would they, how would they respond? You know, what would, what could one man there possibly do? Who would listen to him was too much for him. Uh, The thought was, I'd be ridiculed if I went to Nineveh. If I somehow breached those walls and got into that city, at at best they would ridicule me, at worst they would kill me. And I'd be added to the pile of bodies that littered the streets there. We can at least understand on a human level why there might have been fear like that, to go to a city like Nineveh and to preach a message like this, to cry against them and talk about their wickedness. But is that the answer? We don't have any indication in the text that it was fear. We don't have any indication in the text that it was fear of ridicule. We don't have any indication in the text that it was, it was fear of death. So what's the reason? Well, the reason actually comes within the story itself. Look at Jonah chapter 3, where we actually get the reason for his refusal and his departure. In Jonah chapter 3, we have this record of the second call of Jonah to go to Nineveh after a series of intervening events, including a ship and a storm and sailors and a fish and prayer and a spewing out of Jonah on dry land. But look at Jonah 3, which records this second call to go to Nineveh. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And I know we're jumping ahead, but this is survey night. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes." He issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly 
that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Praise the Lord. And then it says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And I got to keep reading a few more verses. Look at verse or chapter four. But it greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I know, or I knew, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So we have our answer here to the question, why did Jonah flee to Tarshish in the first place? It's right there in in plain view in Jonah 4, 2, where he says, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. In other words, it was precisely because of this outcome that Jonah had disobeyed originally. He knew that, that God was a gracious God and that he had sent him to Nineveh not only to announce pending judgment on the Ninevites to, you know, to preach the fire and brimstone sermons. Rather, God was sending Jonah to Nineveh so that Nineveh might repent. And because of the possibility that Nineveh might repent, Jonah wanted nothing to do with it, which is why he was so quick to flee, as it says, to Tarshish. He didn't flee to Tarshish because he was afraid of traveling to a foreign country. This wasn't about traveling far or racking up too many miles. In fact, Tarshish was further away than Nineveh was from where Jonah's home base was. Jonah didn't flee because he was embarrassed by the prospect of standing on a street corner and looking like a fool as as people passed by. And Jonah didn't even flee because he was afraid of losing his life there in Nineveh. Not only does the text not tell us anything of the sort, but we actually have already seen in a couple different places in Jonah that he did not seem to have some sort of overwhelming fear of death. Like look at Jonah 1.12. We'll get here real soon. This is when he's being confronted by the sailors in the storm on the sea when he's there on the ship. And he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea as the solution to having the, the sea and the storm eventually calm down. Or as we just saw in, in Jonah 4.3, when he has his temper tantrum over Nineveh's repentance, he says, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So he didn't flee to Tarshish because he was afraid of dying. No, he fled because the command God had given him was clear. The command God had given him back in verse 2 to go to Nineveh and cry out against it. It was clear. Jonah knew the implication of that. He knew it was being communicated there by God. He knew that what God was saying there without needing to study any commentaries or lexicons, was that there was going to be a call to repentance. And that repentance was indeed, if the call went out, likely to happen. But Jonah, his will was on a collision course with God's will. God's will was evident. The wicked people of Nineveh needed to be called out by Jonah for their wickedness. They needed to be called on to repent. But Jonah had his own desires. He had his own plans, his own ambitions to fulfill. He had his own concepts of how things ought to be and how 
Best he needed to serve God. For Jonah, it was not thy will be done. For him, instead, it was my will be done. God said, go to Nineveh. And then Jonah said, no, I'll go to Tarshish. And not only that, he went to Tarshish, it says at the end of verse three here, to be from the, away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's quite the statement. The concept, the idea that you can flee from the presence of the Lord. But what does it mean? And, and what does Jonah mean in using that here as he writes this text out? Did, did Jonah actually believe that he could escape from God's presence? No, I don't think he did. I think he would have known and agreed with what the, the Lord communicated through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah twenty three twenty four, which says, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Not only that, Jonah would have been familiar with Psalm 139, which was written well before the book of Jonah and which we read in the scripture reading for this evening. Where David says in Psalm 139, 7 and 8, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So if he knew these truths, if Jonah knew these truths, and he knew that he couldn't actually physically flee from the presence of the Lord or escape God's notice, why did he run away? Well, Again, it wasn't because he thought he could escape the notice of God. Instead, he was fleeing because he was trying to wiggle his way out of the commission of God. He was trying to weasel his way out of his duties. He was trying to do this as a way to maybe have this buck passed to somebody else, some other prophet who would eventually get around to doing what he had been called by God to do. So that under somebody else's watch, not Jonah's, the Ninevites would ultimately repent. As one commentator notes, Jonah... The ardent nationalists, therefore, attempted to flee to a place where no fellow, fellow believers would be found, hoping that this would help ensure that God's word would not come to him again. If he stayed in Israel, he could expect to hear more from Yahweh. But if he left, he might hear nothing further. And that was too much for Jonah to handle, that he might hear more from Yahweh, that he might hear yet another command to go to Nineveh and call on them to repent. And that was too much for him to handle Because in Jonah's heart, the idea that another people group, like the Ninevites, that they could experience the mercy of God, was unbearable to him. In the end, what we see is that Jonah, in his fleeing, was motivated more by by self-interest and even patriotic duty to Israel than he was motivated to heed and comply with God's word, the, the word of the Lord. And what we see here is that while the prophet understood and to a degree appreciated that that God's wrath hung over the wicked people of Israel, that this prophet was not as compassionate as God was and as God commanded his people to be. Right in Exodus 34, verse 6, he would have known that, that God had decreed and declared that God was compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He would have known from Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, that God very well might relent from the calamity that he was planning to bring to Nineveh. Uh, Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. 
And while Jonah was happy that God saw fit to show mercy to him, for instance, on that day when he was spewed from the mouth of the great fish, he resented the idea of God's mercy being shown to the Ninevites. He wanted no part of any revival of Assyrian fortunes. Those people were pagan and had already shown their hostility to the Lord and to Jonah, they were only worthy of judgment. Jonah, in other words, was jealous. He was jealous in the very way God had predicted all the way back in the days of Moses, his people would become whenever he showed favor to another nation. Deuteronomy 32, 21 says, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And we know later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul would appeal to this very type of jealousy when speaking of his fellow countrymen, the Jews, in Romans 11, 13 and 14. He says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, meaning the Israelites, the Jews, and save some of them. The point here is that Jonah, he fled because he was jealous. And he fled because he was self-righteous. He had a great need for a mirror, a mirror that would show him his own, own inexcusable lack of compassion for those Ninevites who had specks in their eyes when he indeed had the giant log in his. Alexander White, a preacher of at least 150 years ago now, said this once. He said, when I watch the working of my own heart, this is what I am compelled to write. I am Jonah. Is he right? I mean, the word of the Lord has come to us, has it not? And God has given us in the church age a a central command. To, To Jonah, it was arise, go to Nineveh. To us, it's go and make disciples. That's our command. Now, the question is, what are we going to do with his word? Now, what are we going to do with his commands? I get it. Different eras, different times, different contexts. But this is the same God that spoke to Jonah that that speaks to us today through his word. And the question is, are we going to heed and obey the commands God has given us in his word? Are we going to heed the word of the Lord, unlike Jonah here? Or instead, are we in our lives, and whatever that looks like, going to run the other way? It's going to be an exciting study. And like I said, I don't know how many verses we'll handle per week. We're going to take it section by section. I'd like to say we'll be done by the year 2023. Can't promise it. Anyway, we're done for this evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the chance again to be in your word tonight. Thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you for the negative warnings it is going to continually provide us. As we look at this man, this prophet, this man who is continually running away from and drifting from and turning his back on your commandments and your word. I do pray that we would take the good from this book, the positive examples, the truths that are are worth following positively, but we would also heed the negative commands and the negative examples like these from Jonah where he's disobeying the word of the Lord and, and going away from the Lord, fleeing in the opposite direction of the Lord. May those be clear and timeless warnings to us in our lives. May we always seek to do your will. May we always seek you through your word. May we 
in the age in which we live, continually go to the cross and recognize that any ability that we have to do so comes through the, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the eternal life that he has secured and the spirit that now lives in us. God, I pray that as we would go through this week, that we would continually come back to the texts that we've studied today, that we'd be encouraged by them and motivated them by them and challenged by them, and that we would seek to honor you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.